had an opportunity to meet a role model. I grew up watching some Asian women report the news. There was Lori Matsukawa in Seattle and Connie Chung on the nightly news. And some say meeting your idols isn't always a good thing, but our guest today, Ann Curry, is amazing. She's incredibly humble for an award-winning and renowned journalist, and her insights and wisdom on the craft of journalism and ego need repeating in every industry. You have this perception of calm and empathy about you. When did this idea of dignity in others start to resonate with you? Mm. I think it's been a persistent lesson. I think I've seen it throughout my life. I've seen the beauty and the dignity in others. And certainly, you know, I think maybe being the daughter of a mother who struggled uh, as an immigrant in America um, against sometimes overt racism and and also her own insecurities about whether she belonged and and her effort to become an American citizen. And I remember her asking me about the 13 colonies and studying so hard to become an American citizen. And then when she finally was able to raise the flag in front of our house, I could see there was a kind of this beauty, this effort, this deep wish that we all have to belong and to be accepted. And it's in every one of us, whether we immigrated here or not. And and yet, I also have recognized that we all do belong. And so when I came to that kind of understanding, then I started to grow. It started to grow. It was like a seed. And then it grew and grew from there. And it certainly grew, you know, as I learned about um, history and it grew as I covered stories and could see in some of the most difficult places the generosity and the courage of people who are on their knees to lift others. I saw human dignity. So the point is that I've, it's almost been like a consistent learning. And um, it, it is an absolute truth that it exists in us. And so to miss it is a mistake. That's actually what's not true, is that it's missing it. And I think so many of us blur through life, rush through our time, and we, we miss it. It's quite a seed that started with your mother, who's Japanese. She's now gone, but she would say that she's an American. But she was uh, born in Japan. She was a war bride. Um, my father was an occupation soldier um, who um, met her by accident as she was working to punch tickets on a streetcar, and he got on. And boy, their story is fantastic. But yeah, it started, um, I, I would say it started with her. Mm. She's no longer with us, but you have two children. What is it from her cultural background that you instill in your kids? Oh, gosh. Well, mostly I would say, I mean, so many things, but mostly I would say it is the most important lesson that she taught, which was, um, uh, and the word she would say is, gombaru. Gombaru. Do your best? More than do your best. It means to never, ever, 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 ever give up, even and especially when there's no chance of winning. Oh, my God. Gombaru. And this came from a woman who, you know, as a child um, faced starvation, who as a young woman would em had emerged from a bomb shelter to a town that was completely destroyed by aerial bombs, who went through 
um, the occupation, who came to America and faced difficulties, and who raised five children uh, with a military husband, um, often his job causing him to go at sea, mm -hmm. and this woman to never, ever give up. That was the kind of lesson um, that, that she taught that I hope our children have fully embraced, because certainly they've heard me tell the story over, I mean, ad nauseum, I've told the story about my mother in Gombaru, but, but I, think, I think some part of that is still in them. The best stories need to be told over and over again, <laughs> especially with the young ones. It's like you have to repeat yourself, right? That's true. Um, in Korean, I would call you onni, mm. older sister, and in mm. Japanese, it's onne, mm. which is so similar to your name. You are literally the oldest, mm. and your name is older sister. And you have been this role model for so many people. What has that been like for you? Well, I think that, you know, you don't think about trying to be someone's role model. I mean, that's almost kind of um, maybe a little too self-important. But I think what you can do is show people the possibilities in them by trying to do work that is valuable and so creating value, right? Mm. Um, and oftentimes we do that by, you know, what is the thing you're here for? My father, the big American white guy, my Japanese immigrant mother who became an American citizen, married, she called him a big American white guy. But anyway. My mother calls mine white devil. Okay. okay. <laughs> that has, has a pejorative feeling to it. Okay, some overtones there. Uh, but They're uh, still married. Okay, good, good. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, uh, and and um, but my my father used to say um, that you know you should do something that is of some service you know to someone else with your life that if you could do that then you would know at the end of your life uh, on your last day as you breathe your last breath that it mattered that you were born so this idea of sort of just trying to create this kind of value what is the what is something you can give and sometimes it's not you don't always begin knowing what you're supposed to do on the planet. But if you can start by doing something that you can do that is of some service, sometimes it can lead you there. And that was, to some degree, what happened for me. And I think that this idea can help you then think about, well, okay, so if I can do that, then there's an earnestness in your work, right? There's almost a kind of a purity of motive in your work. Yes. And that is a thing that I think inspires others. It's not really you so much. Yes. It's that you are doing something and people can see that earnestness. They can see that you're flawed and you may not may do it perfectly, but boy, you're trying, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, they, and they recognize that. And I think we recognize this effort in each other and we, we want to go with that. And that's, I think, what inspires other people. Well, and now this relates back to the work you do as a journalist, a reporter, as a host, is we're taught in school or taught in journalism school. It really is about the story, not about you. But, you know, when you, you bring something to the story, whether you're trying your hardest to keep out of it. And I think that's the uh, authenticity we see in your work is it's you. Mm -hmm. It's still the story. Yeah. But you're the one bringing it. And I have to say, I get really emotional. <laughs> aww, aww. And why is that? I think it's because telling stories is important work. It is important work. You're absolutely right. In giving voice to people, not giving them voice. That's not the way I mean to say it. I mean, giving, just giving people who are not heard a chance to be heard. You know, people, especially when they struggle. And forgive me if this doesn't resonate with you, but when I first learned about the Holocaust and I understood what it might have taken, just imagine what it might have taken to be a people that still survives today after that. 
I thought to myself, I recognize on some level the beauty of this ability to survive. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, that I wanted to be the kind of person who could stand up for people who have no voice, who would not be heard. And when I discovered that at the time that the Holocaust was occurring, the American people were not told by journalism that it was happening in real time, even though there was evidence. There was one story on like a, a tiny story in the New York Times inside the newspaper, uh, not enough. People were not told in real time. I thought, okay, look, I'll never, I hope ever face a story like that, but not on my watch, right? Not on my watch. And that's the kind of thing, you stand up against what you will not allow. But two, people who are rarely heard often have the most to say. They have stories because nobody expected to hear what, because nobody's been listening. And so over and over again, I found this to be true. And it would it'd be a fight to get these stories out there. Um, but once I got them out there in front of large groups of people, I mean, the phones would light up, people would call in, my boss would say, what are you doing? I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop what you're doing because people are really moved by that. And you know, it's as if people can't see what is right in front of them sometimes. Like with Darfur, you knew to go do that. You knew to go there. You know what? Once they said it was genocide, even before they said it was genocide, genocide is where I draw the line. Every time there's genocide, I will, I have pushed and will, will argue that we should push to do those stories. In fact, I fought to cut through the story in Kosovo, which was a genocide. And uh, finally, you know what I did? I went into my executive producer's office. He was a big deal. And I said, Jeff, you're Jewish. This is genocide. You cannot not cover this story. And he was offended. He, he sat back and he said, can't believe you just said that to me. I said, well, I did, and I'm sorry, but I did, and I meant it. And then he was mad, and I left, and he kind of kicked me out of his office. And it was about Easter, and I was um, in a department store in the child's clothing area trying to buy my daughter an Easter dress. And all of a sudden, my Blackberry lit up, and it was Jeff. And he said, Curry, you're right. You're leaving tomorrow. So... I actually wasn't even arguing for me to go. I was just saying we should do more of it. But, and this is the thing, you can do a story in certain positions and not maybe have it heard by enough people. But because I was in a position in a network that gave me a platform that allowed me to get it to a lot of people, there was a reaction when that story, when I was standing on the on a riverbank with people wearing city dress, washing their clothes in the water, who were weeping because their husbands and their sons were gone because they had been taken away in this war. And after I went, the first week I went, then another network went, and then another network went. Yep. And so all three networks were covering the story. And I wasn't the first reporter there where there were newspaper people, there, were, there was a reporter from NBC News, but because of the platform, it just created it. And so suddenly everybody was covering the story. And this was the time when uh, Madeleine Albright was able to argue, and the Clinton administration began to argue that we should form a coalition. And they told Milosevic, the head of Serbia, and said, look, if you don't stop, we're gonna bomb you all the way to Belgrade. And the, for the first time that is known in history, genocide was stopped from the outside. You know, and I'm not sure what part I may have played, but I played my little part. And I've been told by officials in Washington, one, a very senior uh, State Department official, who said to me, Ann, you know, it's, um, only when the American public is aware 
and cares about something, does Washington, D.C. have the political will mm. to do something mm -hmm. about it? You see? So this is why uh, journalism really matters. What have you learned or discovered while listening to Traverse Talks? Share your thoughts at 100.nwpb.org, and it may be used on air to help celebrate NWPB's centennial. That's 100.nwpb.org to record your public broadcasting story. You, in a variety interview, you said journalists should just do their job. They should keep their head down and stay humble. This isn't a job that makes you popular. Journalists have always been considered scum by politicians and presidents, even their own readers. I'm not a believer in both sideisms. There are certain stories that have no other side. So two things. What do you say to students to keep themselves humble mm. when they're doing this work? And two, I want to talk about both sideisms and what sure. you mean by that. Sure. Happy to. I think that if you come forward looking to brand yourself or to be popular or famous, that is itself a bias. So you're bringing that bias into your work. You're going to ask the question in a certain way. You're going to frame it. You're going to look a certain way. You're going to write it a certain way. You're going to do that stand up and you're going to look good in it. You know, you're going to do that stuff. And guess what? You're going to take away. You're going to steal from the people you're doing the story about. It's not the story, it's you. That's right. And I, and I think that really exists, you know. Uh, the self-focus is really too pervasive, especially in this me, me, me culture and this kind of in front of the camera kind of journalism. You know, it's not as if you do journalism, you don't, you don't do it with a idea that you're trying to create something. All you're trying to do is have faith that if people know the truth, that they see the truth, that they'll maybe care and maybe they'll do something about it. But yeah. your job is not to tell people what to do. Your job is not to affect policy and create some kind of specific uh, support for a particular, you know, law or politician or any of that stuff. Your, your job is to tell the truth. That's mm. it, period. And once people hear it, it's up to them to decide. And in fact, I think it's disrespectful to tell people what to do. That's very American of you. Americans don't like to be told what well, to do. Well, of course we don't. <laughs> of course we don't. You know, my father used to watch Walter and he'd say, what is with those Vietnam protesters? And then I'd say, well, dad, you know, what are we doing in Vietnam? He'd go, Anne, I can't believe they just even say that as the son of a military man. How could a daughter ever, you know, anyway, would have these huge arguments, you know. But when somebody wasn't Walter sitting in, who may be, who sometimes, sometimes there were people who were sitting in, and he'd say, Anne, did you hear that word he just used? Did you hear that tone of voice he just used? He's trying to tell us what to think. You know what? He's disrespecting us. He thinks we can't make up our own mind. Now, I wish more Americans would recognize that today because there's a lot of stuff that we're watching and reading in what's called journalism today that he would, boy, but I'm the one yelling at the TV <laughs> set now because, you know, this is ultimately not what journalism is. Agreed. Um, but I think that, that it really became heightened in, with broadcasting. Uh, but I think it's moving back. I think that we are now, um, as in this transformation, in this revolution that technology is, has forced on journalism, um, it's changing things. Um, in terms of both sidesism, um, you know, people uh, rail against fairness. I do not. Fairness is a foundational principle of journalism, that you cannot get the truth unless you look at it fairly. 
If you cannot fairly look for the truth without trying to move, struggle, struggle, struggle against your own biases, your own expectations, you're not going to find it. You're going to find what you want to find because desire, when you want something to happen, you will find what you want to happen. You will see it from your desire. You won't see it from the truth. Mm. Fairness with keeping truth as your North Star is the way you should work. Both sidesism, which is that you equate both sides, is actually not the truth, right? If you say this car, okay, I'm going to say something stupid here, but you know, this car driven by this person killed this person, and that is true. But then you have this person over here saying, well, actually, that's not what really happened. Uh, the car didn't really kill the person and the person wasn't driving. But you know that's true because the person is dead and you know who was driving the car. So in other words, you don't put that on, right? You don't make it equal just so that it's equal because the truth is not always fair. Uh. But to not pay attention to those voices that would tell you the nuance, it's always the truth is always in the nuance. It's never black or white. It's always in the gray. And if you don't provide the gray and listen and openly to the gray and really measure and weigh, because your job isn't to tell people what to think. Your job is to help them have the stuff so they can make their own minds about what is true and what isn't true. That's how the way I work. And so both sides of them to me is just laziness. It's just, I had to do it really fast and I didn't have enough time and I just threw it out there because I wanted it to be evil. That's just lazy journalism. But do not attack fairness. That's a different thing. And keeping truth as your North Star is not the same thing as both sides. Oh, but Anne, it's so much work to be fair. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, and P.S., just because you want things to be the way you want them to be doesn't mean that that's the way they are. There was a man, I remember in my, one of my first, um, when I first became a, a journalist, a reporter in Oregon, this guy, this old newspaper guy named uh, Spud, he was from Idaho, he said, hey, we're all sitting out, we're all tired, we've been working really hard, we're all sitting around, and we wanted to, I don't know if we were having beers or tea or coffee or whatever, Beer. sitting around probably, and he goes, hey, Curry, you know, he says, you know, let me tell you something, I'll give you one piece of advice. Don't trust anybody. I said, don't trust anybody? He goes, yeah, don't trust anybody. Everybody wants to tell you the truth from their point of view. They all want you to tell the story they believe. Heck, don't even, he actually didn't say heck. Heck, don't even trust your mother. I said, don't trust my mother? Yeah, she's even got an ax to grind. And I thought about this and I thought, he's right. And P.S., he added, don't even trust yourself. Oh, See, that's the part. Right. That's the part. It's the excavating. How do you find the truth? Not that you're going to always find it. In fact, you probably won't. But the effort, the practice to try to get closer and closer and closer to it, that's what you're going for and getting as close as you can. It's a philosophy. It's, is journalism taught as a philosophy? Um, I don't know if it's taught as a philosophy, but I think the ideas about, you know, the struggle towards truth is foundationally immersed in philosophy. Mm. It is immersed in these ideas about what is truth. Is there absolute truth or isn't it? That, those are your philosophical questions. And I can't answer the philosophical questions. I'm not a philosopher. I can tell you there is absolute truth. If I pour this water out, I'm going to get wet. I, that will happen. That is absolutely true. You know, some things are much less clear than that, mm. clearly. But it's in those shades of gray. And we just, it's almost, it's a practice. It's an effort. It's a being willing to fail, but trying still. 
So you did teach at American University. What are some of the important takeaways, besides what you mentioned so far, Seeking Truth, North Star, that you would want journalism students of yours to know? Mostly I think I, I want people to know that the most important thing to have as a journalist is not curiosity, as people talk about, or ability to shoot cameras, or ability to interview, or ability to, to write. It's to have integrity. That is the most important part of being a journalist. And the great news about integrity, the great thing about integrity, it is something you can practice to have. And can just, because I think we need a refresher on what integrity is, tell me what it means to you. What it means to me is to be someone who is accountable. If you make a mistake, you own it. To be someone who is independent, who's not bought or, you know, focused on doing a work because of some interest or some motivation. You know what? My feeling even was, I mean, my boss paid my check, but I wasn't working for my boss. I was working for the viewer. I was working for the reader. I wasn't working for my boss. But if I did a really good job for the reader or for the viewer, I was working for my boss, but my motivation was them. It wasn't the other way. So in other words, having this idea of being fully independent and struggling with that, you know, uh, not allowing yourself to, to let that slide, you know. Uh, and I think, you know, to have humanity, you know, uh, to have integrity means to, to understand that you are talking to people oftentimes about really difficult moments in their lives. Sometimes not, but oftentimes. And that there's an obligation not to hurt them. There's an obligation to hear them. And there's an obligation not to exploit them. All these things. This is about, this is what integrity is. It mm. is about being, trying to reach to be your better self and constantly realizing that you're not actually as good as you hope you would be, but you can keep trying to be better and better. And that journalism is about humans, for humans, about humans, and so it's okay that you're flawed, but don't, try not to make any big mistakes. Try to be always accurate, you know, that's another. Having the integrity to really hold on to really double checking, check, check, and double check, you know, attribute always, except those times when you can't, and when you can't, try to have at least three sources telling you something off the record before you report it, unless that person is in such a high position that they absolutely would know and aren't trying to manipulate you to report it because they have another ax to grind, right? Just like Spud said. Right. And, and then, you know, you know, just to, to be unvarnished in your reporting. You know, try to not accentuate it by adding an even or a, an adjective or something to make it even more. Don't kill the lily. Just tell people the facts, you know, and I think that's that's the struggle. I mean, I've there are times when I look back at my work and I cringe. Oh, I should have done. I, why did I, uh, you know, and that that's the it's the practice of it. Get mm. better and better. at. It. But there are a lot of times I look back and I'm, I'm proud of myself because I could see that I, I could see my effort and I could see I, could, I got close. Was your mother proud of you? Well, my mother um, didn't even want me to go to college, okay? She was a rice farmer's daughter. And she said, I'm not, sorry, I'm going to say her accent. Please because, do it. Because my, and I, and I want to say this with respect. I'm not mocking her. It's because when I grew up, she was very lone in her accent. And, people, and she was mocked for it. So I would speak to her in her accent so that she wouldn't be by herself. So I'd be like in elementary school. And dad would say, well, how was school today? And I'd say, well, school was fine, dad, you know, at dinner. And then mom, mom would say, Anna, what, how was school? Uh, what happened? I said, well, mama, I studied social studies. Social studies study about people. Anyway, so my mom, she would say, Anna, how come you go college? You should 
just marry a rich guy. I was supposed to marry a dentist. I know. You had the option of just a rich guy. I know, like that was going to happen. But the point was that she, but she, but she was actually because she thought it was a waste of money. You know, she was a rice farmer's daughter. And so for her, it was like, why are you wasting your money on college? And I and our family had never had anybody graduate from college. Uh, my father and I went at the same time, him on the GIBL and me at the same time, only because Mrs. Hattie Converse, my English teacher, insisted that I apply my senior year because I hadn't applied to go to college. And she found a way for me to get these small scholarships that basically, and every semester, I wasn't sure whether I was going to get through, but I finally got the thanks to Hattie Converse for inspiring me. And so then after that, and I got a job, oh, Anna, Anna, pretty good, pretty good. She would send me uh clothes. You know, one time she sent me a jacket with rhinestones on it that she wanted me to wear on the air. But no, she was, I think, in the end, proud of me. Proud of you and supportive and told you. Yeah, she did. I'm glad. And she also, Anna, I pride you. Also, Anna, American people like you, which for her meant everything, having feared whether she would be welcomed and accepted. And people did accept me. And people, you know, just they didn't see my race. And sometimes they didn't see my gender. They just saw me. And they'd say, hey, I've seen you on TV. It's nice to meet you. And all of a sudden, they're telling you stuff like they know you and and you're just delighted. And so it's been this kind of full circle, really. It's a bit of a gift being a descendant of a person who's struggled to belong. But we all have this thing. We recognize it because of our own experience. But in every one of us, there is this struggle. Maya Angelou taught me this. She said, you know, no matter who you are, whether your people came here fleeing the pogroms in Russia, whether your people came here fleeing the potato famine in Ireland, whether your people came here in slave ships, forced to lie spoon fashion. Every one of us, our ancestors paid for every one of us. And so this is actually the truth of us. That, and I think this is really true. You know, to, to come to this country and even just to survive, um, no matter where we are on the planet, We survived because there were people who stepped up to save us and love us and care for us and even dream of us. Dream, I hope I I have a grandchild. And I already know I'm not a grandmother, but I already know I love that grandchild. (laughs) And just as I already know I love my grandchild, so once did someone love me. Stay connected with NWPB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search NWP Broadcasting on any of these platforms and press the follow button. That's NWP Broadcasting on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you will never miss a post from us. So you did Chasing the Cure with TNT. You have your own production company. And then you also did for PBS We'll Meet Again. Yeah, that's that's still airing. That was a two-year docu-series where we tried to connect people who'd faced major world events, just like the kinds of stories I've always covered, together and helped each other survive. And uh, there was one that was really powerful about the Holocaust, about two boys who were in their, I think they were 14, who found each other uh, in Dachau, um, and who, no, after one was in Dachau and the other was in another, and they were asked to share a bed because they ran out of beds in a recovery center um, run, I think, by the Red Cross. And they were both, um, obviously, they were Jewish children. They had lost everyone in their family, they believed at that time. And 
and they and just that they had, hadn't seen each other. They their lives went on and decades went by, and we were able to reconnect their at least their families and just the the memories of that. I mean, just I think that you know every one of us has someone that who helped you be who you are, who helped you rise. And it's not always just your mom and your dad and your maybe your siblings, but it's some person who may have said something, you know, not even knowingly, or someone who helped who gave you a job or someone who, you know, helped you in a bad moment. Every one of those people, you know, is a someone who if you could turn around and thank them, wouldn't you want to? Yes. If you could find them to thank them and and so actually, since doing this series, which has been so powerful for me personally, um, because I, it was almost a way of telling the end of the stories that I had so often just told the beginning of. Yes. You know? So the end of the stories is how do we reflect back and how do we remember those people and how they helped us endure and survive those terrible moments. So, but for me personally, what it has meant that is that I've started reaching out to people who, you know, gave me a job or who said something nice or who, you know, I tried to find Mrs. Converse. Who, Good. But, she, but she's already gone. Uh, um, but A descendant? I haven't been able to find her descendant, so I keep saying her name out loud in case anybody's listening so they can call me. But no, Mrs. Converse made a huge difference. But I, I did reach out. I have reached out to um, a, a lot of people. I mean, they're, they're people who, you know, who you don't get to see and you want to thank them for just some part in who you've become. Yes, because we don't do it by ourselves. No one does. Mrs. Connor? Mrs. Converse. Mrs. Converse. Hattie Converse. Now that's a name. Oregon, Medford? Uh, Ashland, Oregon. Ashland Senior High School, my English teacher. She saw me. It was my senior year. It was about, I think, just starting to be spring. I should have applied the year before, but there was no money for me to apply. She said, Anne, where are you going to college? Because everybody was getting their college you know, acceptance letters. And I said, oh, Mrs. Converse, I, I'm not going. You're not going? No. Uh, I, you know, we can't afford it. She grabbed me by my wrist marched me down to the front office and she said to the college counselor, get this girl into a college. Yes, good and she her. and I applied to one college because there was only I applied to the University of Oregon because I could only afford, you know, the entry fee for one. And also because it was too late to apply to anybody else. <laughs> and um, and she got me something called the Carpenter Foundation Scholarship, which is a very small scholarship from a local community businessman oh, who wow. had set up a scholarship fund for promising students. So it was partially need based and partially academic based. And this little scholarship gave me the hope. And I worked my way through, you know, because you could do that. I took out loans. And had it not been for that, I think my life would have been very different. One more question. Yeah. When you graduated, you got a job in Medford, Oregon mm. at a television station, and you were the only woman. Reporter. And only Asian, right? Yes. Well, yes. I was the only person who wasn't a Caucasian man. So yes. thinking back then to how you used to do your job and the environment you were working in, to all that has, what are some things that have changed that you've noticed in your career? people or technology? Oh, there's so much. I was shooting film. Are you kidding? You were shooting film. I was shooting film and, and yeah. Uh, With a razor blade and then having and I was I was editing my own film, yep. And it was a wonderful experience. Film is beautiful. Um, that so much has changed. Um, you know, I think that, and I, and I really want to credit, um, and this might sound weird, but I really credit those white men who were in that newsroom, who had to open their minds to me. And I credit those who are, have had to open their minds and are still having to open their minds throughout this country because they have you know, a lot 
has changed and it is still changing. And I think that there has been, in my own lifetime, a new wave for women. And I think it's been an important wave. Look, women are 50 more than sometimes 50% of the population. And I don't think it's about, I, I personally don't think it's about checking boxes. I think it's about allowing more people to compete and allowing the best to rise. Mm. I think that the more you allow of more different groups, the more chances you have for quality to rise. Because quality can come from many different people from many different perspectives. And when you limit yourself, you limit your quality, you limit your perspective, and you limit your success. So that's just a reality of, of how things practically work. It's not something I'm making up, it's actually just practical. And so I credit those who've allowed these changes, but the changes are still ongoing. Um, it's been painful, but I think that in addition, I think that, um, that there are stories now that are being seen from perspectives that maybe um, would never have been heard before that have opened people's minds. What I really hope is that when we can get through um, this technological revolution, as we are now beginning to come further through it, and we're inventing new ways and figuring out new ways to survive in it as journalists and new, new journalism uh, news organizations, that we can begin to use it in ways to tell stories better and more deeply, that we're more aware of each other and of other voices, that we can be actually start to generate a new age of journalism, a new hopeful age of journalism. And I've spoken, as you mentioned, to journalism students, and I can see this passion. I can see this, this understanding in young people that's bigger than even I knew about the reason why we need to defend the truth. We're all awakened now to how vulnerable truth is. And I think that this also is you know, in the fire that is um, forging uh, the future that will come. Mm, I'm so glad you're one of the mentors. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> Anne Curry, that part where she says, the people who are rarely heard often have the most to say. That's one reason she was given the Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award at the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication this year. This is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. <laughs>